Blog Talk Radio. Hi there, welcome to Teach Me to Talk, the podcast. I'm Laura Mize, pediatric speech-language pathologist, and I'm so excited that you've joined me today. It's show number 222, woohoo! And it is Today, currently, if you're listening live or listening this week, it's January 27th, 2014, and very cold, a very, very cold day. I think the high today was reached at about midnight, and it's probably, oh, close to 10 degrees now, so a really, really cold day here in Kentucky. Uh, Before we get started with today's show, let me talk with you about some announcements. First, I want to say that Steps to Building Verbal Imitation in Toddlers is about to be out on DVD as an ASHA-approved continuing education course, so look for that announcement, I hope, this week. Um, Sometimes it's so hard to get those kinds of projects completed and buttoned up and ready to ship, and I'm hoping this will be the week that that happens for this particular course. So if you are a speech-language pathologist and you've read the book, Building Verbal Imitation in Toddlers, but needs some guidance with that. This course would be great for you. If you're a mom and you're thinking, oh, I just wish that I had some more insight with this, you, of course, are not going to need that continuing education credit, but you might like the course. Lots of moms buy the courses, even if they're not professionals. And again, um, that's up to you, but lots of moms enjoy it and like it, so I wanted to throw that out there as well. I also want to mention that we're in the process of obtaining ASHA credit for all of my DVDs, so that's Teach Me to Talk the DVD, Teach Me to Listen and Obey 1 and 2, and Teach Me to Talk with Apraxia and Phonological Disorder. So if you have watched any of those DVDs previously, this is the year that you'll get your ASHA credit for that, hopefully, once all those... uh, Deadlines are met and the paperwork is done and it's finally approved. And so, again, look for that announcement uh, on my website at teachmetotalk.com or if you follow me on Facebook at uh, teachmetotalk.com or on Twitter. And, again, be sure that you're always searching with .com so that you can find us uh, on those social media outlets. I want to thank the peer reviewers who have stuck with me during this process of getting all those DVDs and all those projects approved. And uh, there are too many to really mention and thank by name. But again, if, if that applies to you, I so appreciate you. And if you want to join that star panel of peer reviewers for any upcoming TeachMeToTalk.com project, shoot me an email at laura at teachmetotalk.com. I like for folks to have at least 15 years experience to be considered for that and also for most of that experience who have been in early intervention. It also helps if you've served in a supervisory role. So if you have had uh, mentored clinical fellowship year uh, professionals, that would count, or supervise the staff, or any kind of managerial role, that would count. If you've had any kind of consulting experience or teaching experience, that certainly uh, would help and would uh, guarantee that you'll get to participate in any upcoming project. But if you're listening and want to do that and and you have some extra time and, and would like to partner with me and work with me on that, 
I'd love to have you. So, again, shoot me an email. All right, today's topic is running effective groups for toddlers with communication delays and disorders. And I received a great Facebook message from a speech pathologist named Jackie, and she works in Singapore, and I'm just going to read her question to get us started for today's topic. She says, um, I work at an early intervention center in Singapore. In my center, we work with a team of early interventionists, OT, PT, MT, and AT. Not quite sure. I guess MT is music therapist and AT, hmm, I'm not, art therapy, I bet. I bet it's art therapy. She says, the early interventionist and a teaching aide lead a class of five to ten children with special needs who attend our center three to four times a week for three hours each time. With a high caseload of 80 children to one therapist, oh, my goodness, that gives me an increased heartbeat just reading that caseload, <laughs> And limited manpower, there's no time for individual speech-language therapy sessions with all of my little kids. You previously did a podcast, and she said it was episode 164, before about conducting therapy in childcare settings. Some ideas were great and are certainly applicable to my setting, in which the therapy groups consist of five to seven toddlers, all with special needs with a similar profile. But I'd certainly love to get more ideas from you. She goes on to say, I'm not sure if this model of providing therapy services is common in the States. I've been working in this setting for three years, and I'm still trying to find better ways to run my groups. And she's asking if this could be a possible topic for an upcoming podcast. And it certainly is. And I love when listeners submit questions like this because I always want to make sure that I'm addressing what people want to hear and what news they need and, and what they want to listen to while you are exercising or ironing or cleaning or driving or whatever it is you do when you listen to the podcast. So thank you, Jackie, for a great question, and let me get going with this kind of discussion about running effective groups for toddlers. If you've listened to the show before, I've mentioned several times that one of my very best professional experiences in my whole career was a two-year period when I ran a playgroup program uh, for toddlers, and that was funded by my state early intervention program. Funding changed after about that two-year period, so that's why we no longer did it. Uh, but it was so much fun, and I absolutely loved doing that. And so let me just give you some insight, and we'll talk about it not only with specific ideas that can work, but we'll take a bigger view. We'll look at overall how you, how you think about programs like this and, and what kinds of things go into shaping really effective group programs. And even if not, mm, let's say, operating a group program right now, if it's something you're thinking about or something that your agency wants to pursue, I hope that I can give you some ideas for developing the program and starting to really plan what might work for you. And let me just say that I, I wanted to do a group program probably for three or four years before I ever officially got it off the ground. In hindsight, that was a mistake because the funding ran out way too soon. I should have had that baby open and running long before I did. But I hope that by, again, if, if, if you are listening and you're even thinking about it, 
I can encourage you to pursue that dream and hopefully help you achieve some success that if I had listened to a show like this or heard someone else talk about it, I could have hit the ground running uh, more quickly than I did. So let me just start by saying that you have to develop your own philosophy. And again, even if you're just an individual clinician and you just happen to see some of your caseload in small groups, that may not even be in a clinical setting. It may be that you go to a daycare or you see a child at preschool or you see a child whose mom babysits or who has lots of siblings. These ideas can help you even with that and it may seem a little bit silly for you to think about developing your own philosophy. Oh, my goodness, it's so necessary. And it's certainly something that as a younger clinician, if you've not thought about before, you know, what do I stand for? What, what do I want people that think about my practice or when they hear my name, what do I want them to think about me? What, what would be something that I, how I would want people to describe me? When service coordinators are talking with moms about their options for service providers or when a doctor is making a referral or another therapist, what do I want them to say about me? And so if you've never done that before and if, you've, if you're not the philosophical type, that's okay. <laughs> but I want you to stop and kind of think about that a little bit because it will guide you, especially if you're just beginning to think about developing your own program. It certainly even will help you as you begin to plan your activities and even implement those activities if you have an overall goal in mind for what you want your program to be. And you may not write it down. It may not be a mission statement per se, but I think most organizations need that kind of um, direction at the beginning. And certainly when I ran the playgroup program, I probably didn't think about it as concisely and concretely as like I do the website. The, our, our website, my website, teachmetotalk.com, our tagline or our mission statement is we help parents and professionals teach toddlers to understand and use language. And again, that's really simple, but every single thing that I do, whether I'm working with a child or whether I'm answering an email from a mom or whether I'm coaching a therapist, whatever it is, really falls under that overall premise of me helping a parent or a professional or even a child learn how to understand and use language. And so think about that and think about, again, maybe even in terms of how you would carry that out. You know, for me, fun is a really big part of my practice. I want the kids that I'm working with to have a blast. I want to be the highlight of the week. I want them to be so excited about seeing Laura when they come to visit me here in my office. When I did lots of home visits, again, I wanted to see a really happy little kid when I opened the door and he or she saw me standing there. I love that. I want parents to be excited about me working with them and teaching them how to teach their child. And so think about that as you are designing and implementing uh, your overall program and those individual sessions. So so that's a consideration that I think lots of us, even us that are in private practice, 
uh, we don't always consider that like we should. It's a real marketing standpoint too, especially if you're trying to differentiate yourself from another program or another, I don't want to say competitor, but someone else who's offering the same kinds of services as you. So you want to be able to set yourself apart a little bit, especially, again, if you live in an area where there are lots of speech pathologists uh, kind of <laughs> clamoring for a group of children so that you have enough business to stay busy and support yourself. So, so that's something that I want you to think about. The next thing that you're doing when you're setting up this space, and again, this would be for a startup program or even for a program that's already existing, think about the space where you'll be offering your services. And you really want to consider the needs of the groups that you serve. And let me give you a specific example. When I first opened my playgroup in 2002, it was a completely new startup. New space for us, new building for us. I, again, was in private practice, but I, we didn't have a whole lot of funds to beautifully equip the entire space. And I remember one service coordinator came in to me and she said, where are your cubbies? Where are your centers? Where, where's your stuff? And I was so glad that that did not intimidate me. And I was so glad that I had already thought that through so that I was able to say that this was on purpose, that I didn't want lots of uh, competition for my attention when I was working with a group of young toddlers. Rooms that are virtually empty really make you or the adults that are there the focus of what you're doing versus when a room is fully set up with all of the visual distractions that can be there. And so if you've worked in a busy childcare setting, you know that sometimes it's really, really hard to keep kids from climbing on the little um, kitchen center or taking all the coats off the coat racks or whatever else is in the room. Sometimes we really have to compete with those environmental distractions that are there. And so if we don't have any of that out, we can be uh, more assured that we are handling um, and addressing those kids with those attentional challenges. So when, when, when you have a room that's virtually empty, I think it's better for toddlers, and so don't look at that as a negative. Think about that being something that you intentionally set up so that the activity that you're introducing can be the focus for um, the kids that you're seeing. When you don't have that luxury of setting up the program from the start, one thing that you might want to consider is how you can eliminate or at least minimize those distractions. And again, that would be visual distractions plus auditory distractions, you know, otherwise known as clutter and noise. <laughs> so if you have lots of things in a room that you're working in, uh, let's just take a common example. Let's say that there are toys everywhere. And so the children that you're working with don't always pay attention to what you're doing because they're continuously going over and dragging out toys from the shelves. What, what can you do about that? Can you remove the toys? If you can't remove them and put them away somewhere else, can you at least turn the shelf around 
So the toys are hidden and obstructed from a child's view. I've seen um, preschool programs that cover the shelves in some way. So you'll make like a curtain. And again, this doesn't have to be fancy, but it certainly would be something that prohibited <laughs> an attention-challenged child from seeing a toy and wanting to run over and grab it when it's not time for him to play with that particular toy. So think about things that you can do. Sometimes we are in environments for these kinds of groups that are really too noisy for our little friends to be able to pay attention. And again, sometimes we can't control that. You can't always pick and choose where you do therapy, but you may be able to eliminate some of that background noise by closing a door, by moving to a different room, by scheduling your group at a time when maybe it's quieter. So again, those are things that you can think about and things that will ultimately help your group be more successful. Let's get into kind of the nuts and bolts of planning sessions. And this is where I think Jackie wanted some help <laughs> um, so that she could make sure that she's really designing activities that keep kids interested and more than that address their goals and that are effective. I like to think about having an overall schedule for these activities too because it keeps me organized. And it's such a nice framework when I kind of know what I'll put where and what, how many specific activities I'm going to need for a particular group. So I think it's a good idea just to map that out and go ahead on a sheet of paper, write the things that you already have, have listed or have, have known or have predetermined as what's going to happen in your day. Of course, you have to stay flexible and you need to adjust when those last-minute things come up. You're always going to get surprises. But having a general plan, again, will help you more effectively choose tasks that will fit into that daily schedule. I also like the idea of having a schedule so that over time, the children that you're working with really develop expectations of what will happen. And I think you maximize that participation and um, their ability to stay on task and just everything when kids learn what to expect. Transitions especially become easier when kids know. We sing this song and then this happens. Or first we wash our hands and then we all go sit down for snack. So again, having that planned, having that forethought so that you've written that down and you've, you've been very, very purposeful about designing what comes next and what we're going to do for every single session is um, a really important part of having an effective group. Now, for those of us who do lots of individual sessions, we may have gotten out of the habit of doing this. You know, in grad school, you probably planned what would come First we're going to do this, and then we're going to do that, and you know, you'll have a general idea. And even now if you're doing home visits, you may take a toy bag and have a general idea of what's going to happen, but the order that you're doing things really doesn't matter because it really just depends on what the child likes and on how it's going, and we certainly want to follow a child's lead. But in a group situation, you don't necessarily need to do that. And so 
or want to do that <laughs> so that you can have some structure there to be sure that the group flows like you need it to flow. So think about that. And those of us who have gotten really comfortable with, you know, doing therapy on the fly or shooting from the hip or whatever you want to call it, those of us who are really adaptable sometimes struggle a little bit when we go back to a more structured lesson planning kind of session because we've not done it like that in so long. But I think this is the number one thing that I would recommend, particularly if you're struggling with feeling like you're getting all done that you should get done in a great session. So make sure that you're really writing that down and that you have a pretty general idea of what's going to come first and then come next and keep it moving like that. If you have support staff working with you, I think they'll really appreciate that you've taken the time to plan and structure and and chart out what's going to happen at each particular time. So that's certainly something that I would recommend to Jackie. I don't know if she's doing that already. That may be something that they already do. But if you're not doing that, and even if you're just a consultant in one of these programs, that's a step that I would highly, highly, highly recommend that you do is, is make it a little more formal so that everyone knows what to expect. When you were developing this schedule, let me tell you how I do it and how I did it then. And again, even now if I'm seeing a child in a daycare or a preschool and I know that I'm responsible for that hour, and we all have those kids that we see at daycare that we know as soon as we walk in, the teacher is done. She is on break. <laughs> She's over by the wall. You know, smoking this more more socially acceptable, not that it ever was, but certainly less so now than 20 years ago. But I would all, almost kind of think that at, at that time, a teacher in a daycare would just think, I'm going to smoke. You've got him. I'll be back in a minute. That doesn't necessarily happen anymore, I hope. <laughs> But certainly we have teachers that kind of check out. So, again, it doesn't matter if you're thinking about a formal program or if you're going to be at, you know, kinder care next week and this is happening to you. Plan your activities ahead of time and think about using a move, sit, move, sit, move, sit routine. All right, what do I mean by that? I mean that you plan First, we're going to do activity A, which means that the children are up and moving about and, and doing some kind of gross motor activity. Now, it may not be a free-for-all running. <laughs> many, many times we hope that's not it. We want something more organized. But you want the kids to have an opportunity to regulate their little bodies. And if you're a mom and that's a new term for you, that's certainly something that our colleagues who are occupational therapists teach us about is how to help children get their little bodies to the point that they can calm down and settle down and sit down to do a particular activity with us. And so when we plan the things that will happen in a therapy session with first we're going to move and then we're going to sit to do this and then we're going to stand up and move as we do this activity, then we'll sit back down and do this activity. When you plan them with the move, sit, move, sit, move, sit, so many wonderful things happen and children really respond well to that routine. They learn that they can stay seated for just a little while and again their little bodies have, have However you want to think about it. They've gotten the wiggles out. They've 
they've, you know, run themselves ragged, whatever, however you want to think about it, then they're able to sit down and pay attention. And just when they get to the point that sitting is about to be uncomfortable for them and they can't do it anymore, then you've planned that next activity where you're all up moving again. And we'll use that same, same, you know, Rinse and repeat where we move and we get everybody running around, jumping around. Again, I'm going to give you some specific activities that you can do with that, and then we're going to go back and sit down. So think about that as you plan. So you may, as everyone arrives at the beginning of the day, have a gross motor activity to get going. One of the things that I did with our group program is we had something like an inflatable bouncer so that the children could come in and jump, jump, jump while all of their friends were arriving. We had a ball pit that um, kids, that the ball pit might have been the opening activity for the day so that kids were jumping in and out of that ball pit and throwing those balls and chasing after those balls and doing that kind of thing. It might have been something like sit and spins that we were using. If you are in a program that might let you have your opening time in the gym or the playground, that would be a great thing to do first. And then we immediately went into circle time because that was the biggest sit-down activity of the day. And we wanted to schedule that early. <laughs> so, again, that we had optimal participation kind of right after we had given everyone a chance to run around and and get their little bodies and their little brains ready. And then we immediately went into, well, not immediately, but after 15, 20 minutes or so, however your schedule permits, then you go right to your sit-down activity. And then after sit-down time, we got up and we did something else that was a movement activity but related to our day. So plan to let a child move as a part of your sessions. And again, over time, that will really, really reduce most children's tendency to want to run away when you're doing a sit-down activity, and that's always a concern. Anytime we're, we're running something as a group, we get so concerned and so bent out of shape when a kid is off task and over wanting to do his own thing. When you schedule these movement breaks or these, these opportunities, and it's not so much a break because you're not really going to let the kid run around while everybody's doing something else, you know, you want to you want to schedule it so that that movement part is included, and everybody's doing that, and everybody gets the benefit of uh, again getting up and moving around so that you can can regain that attention. And so over time, when kids get used to oh, first I move around and we do whatever we're doing, and then we sit down for a while, and again, it won't matter what your next task is, whether it's a play based task like you're all playing in sensory boxes or you're all playing with farm equipment if you're using a farm theme or or it might be something like a craft or snack time. And then they know, then, you know, they always expect that the, if I have to sit at this table, the next I'm going to get to do something where I can run around and it's okay for me to be up and not have to be sitting in that chair for longer than 15 or 20 minutes at a time. So be sure that you're thinking about that and using that, that I, I never wanted any activity to go beyond that 15 or 20 minute time frame. And some of you, I know, are thinking, oh my goodness, three hours and you're changing activities every 15 or 20 minutes? Yes. 
And if you have a group who's developmentally younger or a group with children who are particularly challenged with their sensory processing systems, it may be it may be shorter than that. You may have to plan enough activity so that every ten minutes or that sometimes you know, at least half of your activities don't exceed ten minutes at a time. And so you really again have to do enough planning and enough thinking about it so that you're not constantly having to bring a kid back and or have the majority of the children that you're working with off task. Now anytime that happens you just need to know I cannot handle this behaviorally. This is a scheduling issue or this is a programming issue. When most of the children in your group are not participating and not cooperating and not doing what you need them to do, it's because the task isn't appropriate for them. And as teachers, that is so hard to think about and hear. And again, as therapists, we kind of think that way and we we design our activities that way and we... I hope we know that and are taking that into consideration, but sometimes that's a hard sell for a parent or for a teacher because they think, well, this is just a whole group of really bad kids here, and I've just got to crack down, crack the whip, you know, crack down behaviorally on these kids so that they learn to mind me and they learn to stay on task and they learn to do what they're supposed to do. And most of the time that's not how we should respond. It really should be thinking about it in terms of, for some reason, this either was, was an activity that was scheduled inappropriately, meaning they didn't have enough time to regulate. And again, regulate means getting their little bodies in, whether it's usually it's calm, revved up and then calmed down enough to be able to participate, or it's an activity that's not um, developmentally appropriate. So we want to we want to think about that. We'll talk about that in a minute, but let me give you some other ideas for excellent movement activities uh, for toddlers. And again, it might be bubbles. I like to use bubbles even with groups of children, and that might be a shorter movement activity. You might only be able to do that for five minutes before most of the kids in your group are, are wanting to move on to something else. But it's certainly something that if, that if you were trying to do another activity and you were really losing um, children, there, you know, you have a few that are wandering off task, and you don't have enough adult support there as for a one-on-one -on -one <laughs> guided support. That's something you might pull out, and you might use the bubbles as a way again to help everybody calm down and and regulate. Meaning that they're going to run around and pop those bubbles and kick those bubbles and stomp on those bubbles and jump on those bubbles until they get settled enough to be able to come back to either finish what you're doing or start a completely different task. Balloons are fun for that because of all of uh, the different allergies that, that kids these days have. Balloons may not work for everybody. You might want to do beach balls or soccer balls or any kind of um, ball toy or some kind of toy where you're going to be able to kick it and throw it and not hurt anybody or, or, or not require more space than you would have in your room, but that certainly is something uh, fun for everybody. When I played balls in my group program, we didn't just have one because that really makes kids want to hoard it and they think, you know, I'm only going to get it for a certain amount of time so I can't share with any of my friends. I have to jump on it and hold it and, again, and hoard it to myself. Don't do that. Make sure that you have several there so that everybody gets to run and chase and bump around and jump around and all those things. Bowling sets 
dance or another fun kind of activity. And again, this might be where your movement uh, time is a little bit more structured so that you can set those pins up and then roll the ball and knock them down and then set them back up again. Elephant is a great game for toddlers and preschoolers. And it's if you've not heard of that, uh, search it on Amazon or Google it so you can see how cute it is. But it's really a, a, an elephant that has a fan that blows butterflies out of his extended trunk when the fan is on. And the butterflies fly around. And you're supposed to catch butterflies in a net, which older toddlers and young preschoolers will be able to do. You may have a group that there's no way that they can even begin to have a hope of getting a butterfly in a net, and that's okay. Just let the kids try to catch those butterflies in their hands. Or again, you may have some children who don't even want to catch them. They're just having fun running around. That's all right, too. But another more structured kind of way to get that movement activity in. Musical instruments for marching are lots of fun. For simpler versions of this, you just may play a CD with kids' music or even adult music and have the kids dance or, again, jump around, whatever they want to do. You could have the kids run from point A to point B. And if you have a big enough room, what I like to do is have the kids on one wall and then they're going to run to the opposite wall. Now, you may provide a little more structure with this. They may gallop like horses or hop like bunnies or crawl like kitty cats. Anything that you can think of, again, to get that movement piece in. So you'll also want to be sure that when you're using these kinds of activities that you figure out a way to even loosely tie that into your theme. And we'll talk about themes in a second, but let's stop and talk about how do we consider a child's individual goals for planning these activities. And you'll know, even if you have children that have similar profiles, and Jackie mentioned this, she said the kids that are coming to her, they would group them, I would assume, according to ability, maybe not so much as diagnoses, although we certainly know that there are programs that, that center around diagnoses. Many cities have Down syndrome of whatever city um, organizations and those kinds of groups may have playgroup programs um, that these kinds of activities would be applicable for. But even, even within a group, even when you have children who are on the similar developmental level, you'll have some variability in your goals. So you want to be sure that you're looking at that and you're thinking about this child's our main concern is a social goal, whereas with another child, his primary goal might be expressive language. And for another child, it really might be receptive language. So you want to think about that. Even though all the kids are doing the same things, you want to be sure that you have each child's individual overall goal in mind so that you're addressing that. And the adults that are working with you have to know that. And we're going to talk about, again, in a minute, we'll get to that with with what works best, I think, for communicating those kinds of things. But I want you to really consider what each, even though you'll have an overall theme and an overall plan, you still need to consider individual goals as you're thinking about your activities. And before even we get to how I did that, let's talk for a second about that term that I used before, which is developmentally appropriate activities. Even if you're going to use 
a preschool model, like you're going to keep your little toddler group on the same kind of schedule as you've seen in highly successful preschool programs, sometimes those kinds of activities won't be developmentally appropriate for toddlers, particularly those with our with overall or global developmental delays. Let's think about that for a second. Think about great preschool programs that you've been in and think about how those rooms look. And many of those programs use centers, meaning that they'll have a little kitchen center. And they may call it something like daily living activities, you know, where there's a pretend <laughs> stove and a pretend sink and maybe, you know, a broom. So anything that might look like a little kitchen. And then they'll have another little center that where the books are and there might be a bean bag chair there. And so that's kind of the book center. And then there's another section of the room that they call the blocks center where they have blocks and maybe they have some cars and some other little toys that go with the blocks. And then there might be another center that they call dress-up. So lots of costumes there and little outfits that kids can. Well, so many of our little guys that would be in toddler groups are not going to be able to use those centers the way that a typically developing preschool model would expect that children would use the centers. What, what would they expect in that program? That would be that the usually you know teacher and an assistant or a couple of teachers are there, and they have three or four children in each little center, and then after a certain amount of time, the teacher says, "Okay, everybody switch," and then the kids kind of rotate, and uh, the kids go from blocks to the kitchen. The kids that were in the kitchen are now going to go to books, and the kids that were in the books are going to go to dress up. That is not going to work for a toddler program. And so you've got to think about that and think about that even if you're working from another model or even things that you've seen that seem like good ideas may not work for the individual children that you're seeing. So you have to really consider how the children are functioning so that you, even before you start to think about selecting your activities. Now, you can consider adapting a toddler curriculum and there are several out there you can just do a search on Amazon and find some of those but what I did when I used my own when I ran my program is I picked a theme that was related to most of the time either um, the season of the year or more importantly a, t a topic that toddlers would really like and be into. So, for instance, I already mentioned farm, fun on the farm, or something like transportation. And, again, are we teaching the word transportation to our little guys? No. We want them to learn car and truck and choo-choo and go and stop and in and out. You know, we'll have our language goals kind of layered on that. But we'll, we'll pick an overall theme that's really interesting and really, again, developmentally appropriate. And so what I did is I might, I bought several books that were toddler curriculums, and these are those thicker workbook kind of, kinds of things. And again, remember, this was back in 2002, 2001, 2002, 2003, 2004. And I bought those books, but I just pulled the activities, maybe even from four or five different 
resources and put them together based on what I thought the kids in the individual groups could do and also based on what the kids liked. And so you can find all kinds of resources for that. And it's okay if you feel like, Laura, I do not have enough time for that. I do not have three hours a week to plan. And that is about usually the amount of time. I usually did it on on weekends where I thought at least a week or two ahead and I was really thinking about how many sessions our zoo theme would last or how many, you know, if the kids if the kids really liked say uh, a winter theme and it went well after two sections and I originally thought or sessions and I originally thought gosh this will just be a week theme and then they were all into it and totally loved it I might think well we're going to do that again next week and let me bring in some other activities so you can adjust your themes and the length of each theme again based on what your kids are doing in in each particular group now I'm going to put a post at teachmetotalk.com tomorrow with links to the specific books I used. And again, a couple of these are older because they're books I really used and that worked for me. And when I was looking on Amazon this afternoon to see if I could find the exact books I used, I, I did find them there. So they're still, they may be old, but they're really, really good and people are still buying them <laughs> since they're still listed there on Amazon. But I also found some excellent newer resources that I would love to check out. So just because I'm listing these books there, don't neglect doing your own homework. You know, get on Amazon or get on, you know, another site and look for some set curriculums if you feel like I don't have the planning time or I just want somebody to tell me what to do, tell me what to work. And this this may be best for you if you are new to toddler groups or if you are new to early intervention, if you've worked with school-age children and this is your first foray into treating toddlers or a birth-to-three program, oh, my goodness, don't feel like you have to come up with everything on your own. Use those resources um, that are out there for you. And let me just tell you something else. If we had had Pinterest <laughs> in 2002 when I was doing this, I certainly would not have even purchased another book because I think I would have been able to search and find activities that would fit into whatever theme I wanted to do or search through enough and look through enough pages that I would even come up with new themes. So if you don't want to spend any money on a curriculum, don't feel like you have to do that. Just just get on Pinterest or or even Google uh, to find some great activities. There are so many creative blogs out there from moms or from therapists that have put together wonderful activities that you can copy or you can modify to meet the needs of your group. And you, again, you might use themes like right now, winter would be something that I would do if I were planning a toddler group. Valentine's Day would be what I would uh, want to do in the next week or two to get that real uh, that seasonal thing going so kids could really participate in that. Any kind of language topic. You might do um, fun at home. You might do people I love and really, you know, concentrate on activities that have to do with mommies and daddies. You might do baby dolls. That might be kind of a family might be your overall theme and you're using baby dolls as one of your activities 
um, that you're going to play. So lots and lots of great um, opportunities for new kinds of play and for new things that toddlers may have not been introduced to at home. Or even, you know, some things work better in a group session than they would work in an individual session. So spend some time researching and coming up with some ideas. Let me give you other websites that I liked. I really used the site called preschoolrainbow.org a lot when I was planning activities. And again, this site has, it looks the same in 2014 as when I used it in 2002, but I, there's a, a free portion of the site and there's a pay portion of the site. And it's it's really good, and and I didn't go into the pay portion because I no longer keep my subscription up, but it, it didn't really really change, again, how, how it looks. So don't let that keep you from looking through those ideas there. I think sometimes we get a little bit spoiled that we want every website to look beautiful and crisp and brand new, but don't, you know, <laughs> negate the great activities that you can find on that site just because the the font may not be as pretty or the background. So I um, wanted to recommend that great site. So preschoolrainbow.org, and they have everything organized in themes. So it will be really, really easy for you to think about something. You know, I haven't, and again, I haven't looked at it specifically, but if you have a kid who's maybe interested in frogs, you could conceivably use a site like Preschool Rainbow and go on and search for frogs. And she might already have so many ideas that would be applicable, and then you could supplement from some other sites. Some newer blogs that I really love and follow, and again, this would be things that I've found in the last, say, three or four years. Let me give you those. Teachpreschool.org, and this is from a very talented preschool teacher named Deborah, who's in Indiana. And she has a beautiful site, and she continually updates it. Something new is on there almost every day. And she's a really hands-on preschool teacher, and so lots and lots of great ideas that you can find from her. Handsonaswegrow.com has some excellent, excellent ideas at that blog. And then one of my very favorite blogs that I've followed for several years now, it's called no time for flashcards.com. And if you've heard this show, you know how I feel about those academic activities like using flashcards and teaching colors and numbers and shapes and letters. We don't want to do that with toddlers who are struggling to learn language. And so these sites will give you great ideas for things that you can take and some of the ideas you'll just be able to duplicate and do them as that, as they do them. And sometimes you may have to think about it and, and change it a little bit to make it work for your group. But I wanted to give you some of those specific ideas. Now, if you were working with toddlers who need structured individual teaching tasks, and again, I'm using that teach method, just search teach, T-E-A-C-C-H, and you can Google that and get a whole host of blogs that will provide those kinds of teaching activities, or you might even search for things like tot trays or a term like Montessori. Now, Montessori is a, is a really specific preschool approach, and we don't have time to talk about why we use those activities and how we do them because we've certainly done that on previous shows. 
but sometimes you'll have groups of toddlers who, even if you're working as a group, really need some of that individual one-on-one -on -one activity time. So, and those may not be activities, or those certainly for me would not be activities that I used more than, say, for 10 minutes or 15 minutes of a whole two or three hour time with me, but I certainly would want to have those available. So I wanted to give you um, those resources. All right, we are almost out of time. So in this last 15 minutes, I kind of want to work, work in more specifics. Anytime I'm talking with therapists, no matter what the topic is, the subject of goal writing always comes up because that's how we're trained to think. We think, how can I write a goal for that? What would be a... Uh, an appropriate goal for that. How do I? How am I going to be able to document a child's progress? Last week, Maria, um, who's been on our show, and she's from uh, Communication Station, and she wrote a blog for Asha's blog, and it was for the little column called Kid Confidential. And she wrote a whole post about writing goals four themed activities. And that's loosely what we're, we're talking about and what we're using when we plan for toddler groups. Um, so I'm going to post the link to that specific article. And she also cited Tatiana, who's been on the show before. Um, she was on in December talking about syndromes, and then we did another great show about international adoption. And Tatiana has clarified and written a great post on writing goals. And so we don't want to reinvent the wheel here. And so I'm going to link that post from Asha's blog so that you can take a look at those goals because I think that they've done a nice job in talking about how to write those goals and how to measure those goals and how we would include those in our short-term treatment plans, meaning that you know even your daily lesson plan, how those goals should look. So I'm going to link that there so you can take a look at that. Now let's talk about how we document progress. And again, we have to have our goals written first. But when I ran my group program, we as a group would meet at the beginning of the day so 10 or 15 minutes before the kids arrived, and we're assembling all of our materials and pulling everything together. And I would, I would say this is our overall lesson plan, and that was always written down so that everybody knew what activities we were doing um, and, and really talking about these are our activities, these are the individual children that are coming in today, these are our overall goals for these kids. And then if we had time, we might talk about really skills that we wanted to elicit uh, per child. Let me back up and talk about if you are in the position like I was and you're able to decide what staff you get. You get to hire your own staff. Let me just say you want to think about what your organization needs. Sometimes you have to hire based on qualifications, so meaning that you need a certain kind of therapist to run the group to meet reimbursement qualifications. So if you've got to do that, that's your first and foremost consideration. If you don't have to do that, if you were just getting to hire staff, or especially for support staff that don't necessarily have particular qualifications, you always want to have somebody that matches your philosophy and that fits into your style. If you're the director or the 
the the chase in your <laughs> in your program. Sometimes we, we, you know, again have to hire based on particular things, but sometimes we just get to pick based on on what we need. And I have always found, even if I'm thinking about just for a clinical practice hiring therapist, I always want to hire for attitude and then train for skills. And I know some of you as professionals will cringe when I say that and will think, no, my my license or my degree or my whatever is the most important thing. Sometimes it is, but sometimes it's not. And I had such better luck or better experiences when I looked at how is this person going to mesh with me and our families on a personality um, and and just a character kind of uh, basis rather than on what their skills were. So I just want to throw that out there. So if if you're in the position that you can kind of pick your support staff, always first look for what you have to have and then secondly, Look for what's going to best complement you. All right, so moving back to how we kind of communicated. Did our little 10 to 15-minute prep before kids get there so that we're really talking about and everybody knows what the plan is for the day, gathering our materials. And you don't have to spend a ton of money on programs like this. Based on your activities, you can mostly find stuff that you already have in your agency or your program, but you can also go to Dollar Tree or go to, you know, Walmart, really cheap places to get your materials to. So you've gotten all your materials. Everybody knows what you're doing that day. You're all kind of pulled together. What we like to do is is every child would have a page of progress notes, particularly for that day. And I made a template so that we could address within each activity, and we didn't really have the names of activities written per se, but we were looking at a child's overall goal. So that if his goal is a receptive language goal, that he would identify objects with, you know, 80% accuracy, we're looking at that goal through every activity. And we're tracking that as best we could through every activity of the day. And we're able to do that again because we've got our data system in place. We've done the work ahead of time. We've talked about it. Everybody knows what we're looking for. And let me just mention too that in the program that I ran, I had other speech language pathologists or very qualified developmental interventionists who had early childhood education degrees working with me. So I never had untrained professionals, although I know in some programs they'll use that. So we're all keeping data because we all know what we're looking for. And then after the children left, we did our notes as a group. And that might mean that we took the time to say, talk about each individual child. You know, what did Carson do today? And we're looking at his goals and we're documenting that progress. Or it could be that we're in a hurry and that every, you know, the two or the three, two or three therapists, how many ever people we had in that group and our ratio was one to three, which was required for reimbursement. We were all, we might each take two children and do the documentation, but we knew that ahead of time. So you knew who your two kids were. Or if you had forgotten to do that at the end of the day, you would say, well, I want to do Mary's note because I was with her a lot today. Make sure that you're really thinking about that and planning that and you're real purposeful about that so that your notes don't just say the same blah, blah every darn session. 
and, and so that you are really looking at individual children. Let's talk in the remaining five minutes of the show about what we can do to involve parents. I think that we'll go back to the beginning about explaining and developing your own philosophy for the program. You need to make sure in your initial meeting with parents that you're sharing that, that you're saying we are a play-based program, which means that every single thing we do is based on play. We're not teaching in kind of this, the typical elementary classroom situation. We have babies, we have toddlers, we have young preschoolers, so we're playing and all of our goals, all of those speech therapy goals, all of those cognitive goals, all of those social goals, whatever you're working on, they're all embedded into these play activities that we're doing every day. And you're explaining to them so they, they know that more is going on than just playing. So you set that up from the very, very beginning. You'll also need to decide whether parents get to participate every session or whether or just what your agency's rules are for that. And again, sometimes it's already determined for us. In my program, we got to determine that based on individual children. So if we had a child who was having a particularly difficult time transitioning or separating from mom, we had moms stay. Some, some of those parents we had to practically kick out after months <laughs> because their child at that point was developmentally ready and, and, and mom needed to go. So we could kind of take that next step. Some programs don't have that flexibility. You may be in a program that moms aren't, it's not set up for moms to come in all day, every day. You know, and again, you can't really control that. But just use your own discretion and your own judgment. If you can have parents participate, I think there's, there's no better model because you know that they can see what you're doing and then they're able to carry that over even after they go home. But you want to set that up in the, in the beginning so that parents know and they're not mad at you when you can't let them stay. Or, or maybe you have parents that just want to drop off at the door and then not come back for three hours and then bear, you know, leave their cars running while they zip in and pick them up and they never communicate with you. You need to sell, you know, set the rule up front. We want to talk to you. We want to see you. We want to tell you what's happening every single day. We want to be able to give you a 30-second update. Other things that I did, I always or nearly always did a weekly letter so that parents knew what we were working on language-wise. And again, you may do an overall letter for the program based on what your theme was or what your, your, you know, your whole set of sessions was for a particular group. It might be something you do on an individual group or something you do for an entire program. And parents who've had children in preschool or kindergarten, you know, are used to that kind of communication. So if you're not doing that, that's certainly something you want going so that parents feel like you're telling them what's happening uh, with them. Back to the whole observation thing, we were able to set up closed circuit TV so that if a parent wanted to stay and watch an entire session, they could. And most of the time, if you've been, at, you know, in a university training program, you're used to that so that parents can sit and watch through the observation window. And for some kids, that's, that's how they do better. They may not perform as well when mom or dad are in the room. So if you can set it up so that parents have that opportunity for observation, I think if you're not doing participation, you certainly, certainly need to consider doing that. 
Other things that you may want to do to involve parents, you know, and again, this is going to be beyond your required plan update meeting. You know, if you're doing early intervention, that's every six months where you're getting together as an IFSP team and you're talking about that child. Older children have IEPs where they're meeting annually or sooner if parents need that kind of meeting. But, but be sure that you're including other kinds of opportunities. We did training things for parents where I would talk about a little topic and or we might have a guest speaker in. Anything you can do like that to improve communication among your parents you'll want to do, especially if you don't have time to communicate with them one-on-one. -on -one. Now back to Jackie's question. She has 80 children on her caseload, and again, that makes me gasp. But that's a circumstance she can't control. So she's got to be able to do anything she can to make it easier to communicate with parents so that parents know what's going on so they're involved in their children's therapy program. And again, this is so that they can make the most of that therapy time and work with their children at home. So be sure that you are coming up with some kind of way to get that information to them, and hopefully in the most efficient way possible. You can't sit and write 80 individual notes to a parent. That's not going to happen. So make sure that you've got some little newsletters, even if it's just a paragraph, so that parents know what their children are doing and, and what's happening. Now, that's a lot of information for one hour, but I hope that I've given you some resources to be able to use when you are thinking about programs for toddlers uh, more effective. Tomorrow, I hope, certainly by the end of this week, check back at teachmetotalk.com and look for the post about this um, show. And again, I think the name of our show is Running Effective Toddler Groups. So look for that kind of post so that you can get the specific links and check those out. Thank you so much for joining me today and um, hope to have you back next week. Have a great week. Bye-bye.